Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor and his companions as they return to contemporary London, well, Gatwick Airport, to solve the mystery of the Faceless Ones. We will be discussing each of the characters and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Before I hand over to Paddy, I would like to thank all of you for tuning in to Time Travelling Team as we recently passed 1,000 downloads. Yeah, Yay. thank you. Thank you very much, all you very loyal people that like to hear us draw on, drone on about stuff. <laughs> yeah, thank you all very much for your support. Now, Paddy, I will hand over to you for the recap. Thank you very much. Time to face the faceless ones. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 1. The TARDIS lands at Gatwick Airport just as a plane is beginning to approach. The TARDIS crew make a run for safety as the plane aborts its landing attempt and climbs back into the sky. The foursome are spotted by a patrolling policeman and the doctor tells them to scatter, with the policeman deciding to pursue Ben. In the control tower, the airport commandant is incredulous at the report of a police box appearing on the runway and gives instructions for the plane to go back into a holding pattern and await a new landing clearance. He then rings true to the airport police and orders them to investigate the runway. Upon discovering the TARDIS, they arrange to have it picked up and hauled away. Meanwhile, Ben has managed to give his pursuer the slip and Jamie meets up with the doctor. Polly, on the other hand, takes shelter inside a hangar belonging to an airline called Chameleon Tours. Once inside, she hears voices and goes into hiding where she sees an airline pilot arguing with another man, demanding that he give him back an envelope. The pilot then pulls a strange-looking gun on the man and kills him. He then moves the body and hides him under a tarp before going back upstairs. He opens a secret room and requests that one of his colleagues join him as the postcards have been discovered. He then hears an alarm go off and he sees Polly investigating the body through the security camera. He then goes back downstairs, forcing Polly to flee the hangar. The commandant is informed that the obstacle was in fact a police box, and he requests to be put in contact with the police chief before issuing an order for all planes to be given clearance to land. He tells police superintendent Reynolds to ensure the security is tightened all around the airport, and then requests that all immigration desks report to him if they encounter anyone suspicious. Back on the runways, Polly joins the doctor and Jamie and tells him what she saw in the hangar. The doctor says that they should go and investigate, and Polly wonders what happened to Ben. Back in the hangar, the other pilot, whose name is Blade, joins his colleague, whose name is Spencer, and he discovered that the man they murdered was a police detective inspector. Spencer wonders if a parent had sent him, but Blade says that they should focus on removing the body before anyone finds it. Spencer arranges for a container to be brought to the hangar and then hides a pair of suitcases at Blade's insistence. Suddenly, the alarm goes off again, and through the security camera, they see Polly showing the others the body. Blade berates Spencer when they overhear Polly confirm that she could positively identify him. The doctor then investigates the body and reveals that the man was electrocuted to death and says that whatever gun Polly saw was not made on earth. Blade notes that the doctor is a potential threat but they should focus on dealing with Polly first as she could identify Spencer. That way without a witness to back up his story the doctor would seem just like a madman. The doctor then resolves to go to the main building and find the person in charge to report the body to. As they leave the doctor and Jamie fail to notice Spencer snatching Polly and paralysing her with a strange device. He then brings her to Blade, who begins to question her, but stops when the Doctor and Jamie return to try and find her. As they are unable to find her, they leave to go follow through on the Doctor's earlier suggestion. After they leave, Blade says that they will need to figure out a way to stop them worrying about her. At one of the immigration desks, the Doctor and Jamie try to ask a clerk to bring them to someone in authority, but he refuses, insisting that they first present their passports. They stress the importance of their information, revealing that someone has been murdered, and so the clerk, whose name is Jenkins, advises them to speak to the police, but again requests their passports before allowing them into the main concourse. 
The doctor says that they don't have any, and Jamie lets slip their connection to the police box before the doctor hardly prevents him from revealing any further information. Jenkins, his suspicions piqued by the warnings given earlier on, then asks for them to wait while he rings for the commandant, ostensibly on their behalf. A while later, the commandant arrives with a few policemen and is dubious of the doctor's claims, especially after he is too slow to prevent Jamie revealing the nature of the debt and the fact that Polly, the only witness to the debt, is not with them either. He reluctantly agrees to go with them to the hangar to investigate it. Meanwhile, Ben comes across the chameleon towards hangar and enters when he hears a banging from inside. Blade is hammering the last few nails into a container and returns to his office just before Ben arrives. Suddenly, an administrative official enters with a flight schedule for Blade, and once she leaves, he asks Ben what he is doing there. Ben pretends to be a new employee of the airport, and Blade then offers to show him the way to the main building. He then returns to his office, where he starts to affix stamps to several postcards. Spencer arrives and tells him that Polly is being processed and can be shipped out with the next flight along with another. Blade then takes a syringe and goes to the cabinet, which is actually a large refrigeration unit containing a scaled humanoid figure. Before he can administer the syringe, the alarm goes off and they see the doctor arriving with the others. The body has been moved and the doctor investigates the area with a magnifying glass. The commandant's scepticism grows as the doctor tells him that the man had no identity papers on him and the only thing he found was an unused Spanish postage stamp. He notices burnt fibres on the ground and Jamie points out a newly arrived packing crate that has scorch marks on it. The commandant's frustration grows but the doctor says that they must look for the body and Jamie again spots the container that Blade was nearly shut earlier. They go to open it just as Blade arrives and gives them permission to search it. However, all that is inside is stacks of disposable plastic cups. The Commandant then orders them to follow him back to the main concourse. After they leave, Blade tells Spencer to bring the figure from the refrigeration unit with him and that they need to get him to the next location quickly as the figure is approaching suffocation point. Back in the main concourse, the Commandant tells Jenkins to call Reynolds and have him take over the handling of the Doctor and Jamie. As they are waiting, Jamie points out that Polly is amongst the new batch of passengers approaching the immigration desk. However, she claims not to know them and that her name isn't Polly. Meanwhile, Blade and Spencer help the figure to the back area of the airport medical centre, where it starts to breed heavily. Episode 2 After they have situated the figure on a gurney, Blade pulls back the partition curtain revealing the unconscious form of another air traffic controller who initially told the commandant about the TARDIS. After a short while, they start to tend to the figure as he is having severe breathing issues. A nurse, whose name is Pinto, enters and says that they are nearly too late in bringing him and then goes to the medical cupboard. She retrieves a pair of electronic armbands from it, one black and one white. The white one is placed on the air traffic controller, whose name is Meadows, while the black one is placed on the figure, whose face is completely featureless. They are then hooked up to a strange alien-looking machine and the trio watch as the figure starts to take on the appearance of Meadows. After a while, the imposter Meadows comes to and is put through a few cognitive tests to see if the process was a success. He seems to have all of Meadows' memories as well. Back at the immigration desk, Polly continues to insist that she doesn't know the doctor or Jamie and introduces herself as Michelle Lupe from Zurich. She hands over her passport to the commandant for inspection and states that this is her first trip to England, having come to find work. The doctor comments on her exceptional English, hoping to catch Polly in a lie, but she brushes him off by saying that she had an English governess growing up. The commandant allows her to pass through the immigration desk and stops Jamie and the doctor from attempting to follow her, saying that they are to be held until Reynolds comes for them. While he is distracted on the phone, the duo make a break for it and make their way into the main concourse. They do their best to avoid the police whilst discussing Polly's strange behaviour, with the doctor suggesting that it may not actually have been Polly. He then notices an advertisement for chameleon tours in a paper that he is using as a disguise, which is offering budget holidays for people aged 18 to 25 specifically. 
The Doctor thinks that this may have something to do with Polly's strange behaviour, as he explains the characteristics of a chameleon to Jamie, suggesting that someone has mimicked Polly. Ben suddenly appears and the Doctor suggests that they go somewhere safe, and Ben leads them off. As they are making their way through the concourse, they spot Polly working at the reception desk of a chameleon tourist kiosk. The Doctor tries to get her to recall her memories of earlier, but she insists that she doesn't know him or anything about her murder. She then realises that she has been caught out as the Doctor never mentioned the murder to her. He leaves, taking the others with him, and Blade summons Polly into the back office. He tells her that she has been compromised and that she will be returned to their base on the next flight out. He then says that he will take care of the Doctor and the others. In the control tower, the imposter Meadows returns to his workstation as the Commandant introduces his secretary, Jean, to Detective Inspector Crossland, who has come to investigate the disappearance of his partner, who was meant to meet him earlier so they could carry out their investigation assignment to look into chameleon tours. Ben brings him to his hiding place, which is a photo boot. The Doctor says their ability to investigate the situation is hampered by the fact that they are being searched for. He decides that they should all split up to cover the most ground. He sends Ben to investigate the hangar and Jamie to keep an eye on Polly whilst he goes to the control tower in an attempt to convince the Commandant to help them look into the murder. After they split up, Jamie arrives at the kiosk just as a young girl named Samantha approaches the desk and begins to inquire about her brother Brian, who disappeared whilst on a chameleon holiday. Samantha says that all the information she was given about Brian's holiday and disappearance doesn't add up and presents a postcard that he had supposedly sent to her. Polly asks her to wait while she goes in to look into the matter. She sends a request for Blade to join her, and Samantha goes to sit down next to Jamie, who is using a newspaper to avoid detection. He strikes up a conversation with her, saying that he overheard her interaction with Polly, and offers to bring her to the doctor as he may be able to help. Polly approaches her a short while later, having been instructed by Blade to tell her that her brother went AWOL after landing in Rome. She then closes the kiosk before departing for her flight. The doctor arrives at the control tower, and the commandant summons the police, ignoring the doctor's warnings about chameleon tours. Jean tries to speak about Inspector Crossland's assignment, but she is shushed by the Commandant. The police arrive and the Doctor makes a break for it, pretending that a stress ball is actually a grenade to buy himself some time. Meanwhile, Ben enters the hangar and opens up the packing cases. Inside, he finds the real Polly, who appears to be in some sort of trance. He then rushes up to the office and uses the phone to try and get through to the Doctor in the Commandant's office. The Doctor, however, has arrived back at the kiosk and tells Jamie to wait whilst he goes into the back office. Inside, he sees a monitor watching Ben and sees Spencer attack him from behind, using the same device he used to paralyze Polly. He tries to call through to Ben, but it is of no use, and Spencer sees the doctor through the monitor. Blade arrives and tells Spencer to dispose of the body so that they can prepare for the doctor's inevitable arrival. While this is going on, Crossland has gone to the immigration desk and is speaking with Jenkins. He asks him if he had ever seen Brian, or his colleague, to which Jenkins says that he did, but he can't remember much about him due to the events earlier on. He proceeds to fill in Crossland about what happened. Back at the kiosk, Samantha is trying to flirt with Jamie when another chameleon employee arrives to open up the kiosk. They observe as she instructs the passengers for the next flight to Zurich to fill out a selection of pre-stamped postcards from the area so that they don't waste any time on their holiday writing home. Samantha then realises that this is probably what happened with her brother and Jamie says that they should go to get the doctor, who has departed for the chameleon hangar. Before they leave though, they are stopped by Crossland. In the hangar, the doctor is looking around and opens up a packing case to reveal the real meadows in the same trance-like state as Polly. Suddenly, he hears a voice begging for help as it claims to be suffocating. The doctor goes to investigate, completely unaware that the voice is actually Spencer's. He goes back into the office, which is suddenly completely sealed up as a freezing vapour is steadily poured into the room. Episode 3 The doctor does his best to plug the vent with his handkerchief and other pieces of fabric whilst using his coat to cover the security camera. Spencer goes to check on the doctor, who he finds shuddering on the ground. However, he is merely playing possum and uses one of the paralysis devices that he earlier found in the office 
on Spencer, rendering him immobile. After retrieving his coat, he flees from the hangar. At the kiosk, Crossan is informing a desperate Samantha that he needs to prioritise the discovery of his partner over her brother when the doctor arrives. Jamie introduces him to Crossland, who shows the doctor a picture of his partner, and he confirms for Crossland that this is the man whose body that they had found earlier. Crossland says that he will need to go speak to the commandant again, but this time he will back up the doctor's statements. The doctor tells Jamie to stay behind to keep an eye on the kiosk, but after he leaves, Samantha insists that she wants to go investigate the hangar for herself. She convinces Jamie to join her, pointing out that she could be in danger, and that the kiosk is now closed anyway. Back in the hangar, Spencer regains mobility just as Blade comes in inquiring about the doctor. Spencer advises him that the Doctor is a bigger threat than they initially thought, but Blade tells him that he must eliminate him by himself as he will be taking the flight for Zurich. In the control tower, the Commandant reluctantly listens as the Doctor tells them about the new body he discovered in the packing crate and surreptitiously searches the room for its duplicate. He then shows the paralysis device to the two men and presents his theory that chameleon tours are a front for an alien plot of the mass kidnapping of young people. The Commandant orders him to be arrested, as he has heard enough of his story but Crossland points out that he has not technically broken any laws. The doctor offers to provide a demonstration to prove his theory. He goes to where the imposter Meadows is and uses the device on a cup of tea that he is holding. The tea becomes frozen solid and the imposter flees when the doctor points out that he seemed to recognise the device. In the hangar, Samantha and Jamie are searching various boxes and shelves where Samantha discovers a stack of pre-prepared postcards. Jamie then says that they need to go to the commandant's office. They burst in and show them to the doctor, who compares the locations of the postcards with the list of the remaining flights on the chameleon tour schedule. The commandant takes Crossland aside, and upon Crossland's reassurances he will keep an eye on things, he reluctantly agrees to give the doctor free reign to carry out his investigation, but only for the next 12 hours. In the kiosk office, Imposter Meadows is reporting what occurred in the control tower to Spencer. They realise that even if the others are incapable of believing him, the doctor is still a substantial threat to their plans and must be killed. Spencer gives the imposter Meadows a device to place on the Doctor, and once he gets confirmation it is attached, he will activate it remotely to eliminate the Doctor. Imposter Meadows returns back to the tower, where the Doctor is observing an incoming chameleon flight and discussing their travel patterns with Jean. After a few failed attempts, he successfully manages to place the device on his back as he leaves with Jamie and Samantha. Meanwhile, Crossan has gone back to the kiosk and insists on speaking to the person in charge. Spencer, who is manning the desk, contacts Blade who instructs him to send Crossland to his plane, which will be taking off soon so that he can be dealt with. Crossland goes onto the plane and informs Blade that he is to accompany him to the Commandant's office. Blade says that he will first need to make some arrangements, but Crossland follows him into the cockpit. Inside, he sees that it's actually of an alien design, and Blade pulls a ray gun on him. One of the stewardesses tires him up and says that he is a suitable specimen for someone called the Director. Blade then calls True for clearance to take off. In the hangar office, the Doctor and Jamie search for the secret room that Spencer attacked the Doctor from. They uncover the secret room and see the refrigeration unit, which the Doctor says is actually an atmospheric chamber for those who can't breathe in Earth's atmosphere. They then go to take a look at the monitor bank, whose screen showed them in the medical centre, which the Doctor says they should go to investigate, but before they can leave, Spencer, who has been observing them via the monitor screen at the kiosk office, activates the device on the Doctor's back. He falls to the ground in agony as Jamie tries to help him. Blade's plane takes off and the stewardess hands out the refreshments to the passengers. Once she goes back into the cockpit, Blade turns on the monitor showing the cabin. Blade then reveals the secret of chameleon tours to Crossland and the inspector watches on in horror as Blade turns a switch that causes all the passengers to disappear. Episode 4 Jamie tends to the stricken doctor but Spencer arrives and pulls a ray gun on him. Jamie refuses to leave the doctor despite Spencer insisting that he is already dead. Spencer gives him 5 seconds to comply or he will kill him 
but Samantha arrives and Jamie uses her as a distraction to attack Spencer. Samantha tries to help him, but in the struggle, Spencer pulls out her paralysis device and uses it on both of them. He then lays their prone bodies next to the doctor whilst he starts to set up a laser beam projector and sets it on a slowly increasing arc that will soon cut the trio in half. They each slowly come around and watch in terror as the beam inches closer towards them. The doctor asks Samantha if she has a pocket mirror in her bag, and she does, but she struggles to pass it to Jamie due to their restricted mobility. Jamie manages to get to the mirror though and follows the doctor's instructions to reflect the beam back into its own power box, causing it to blow up. Jamie wonders if this is how Ben and Polly were disposed of, but the doctor says that that they are still alive as they were required for a purpose whereas the three of them were a nuisance that need to be eliminated. He says that they need to find them as well as Brian due to Samantha's reminding him and suggests that they all start by investigating the medical centre while Samantha goes to keep an eye on the kiosk. On the plane, Blade ignores Crossland's question and sends a message to his base informing them that he is bringing an original for the director. Back in Gatwick, the comedian tour's plot continues as Jenkins is also subjected to the duplication process by Nurse Pinto in the medical centre. She gives him the same cognitive test as earlier, but stops when the doctor brings in Jamie, who is pretending to be sick. She ushers Jenkins out and prevents the doctor from investigating the treatment room, saying that there's someone coming in for an x-ray. Meanwhile, the imposter Jenkins arrives back at the kiosk and joins Spencer in observing the duo through a monitor screen. Spencer says that this time he will let the doctor come to them so they can eliminate him easier. In the control tower, Jean is trying to find Crossland but to no avail. The doctor and Jamie arrive saying that they have also haven't seen him. The doctor then sends Jamie down to join Samantha at the kiosk. He and the commandants against get into a debate about the validity of the doctor's theories but they are interrupted by Jean with her startling revelation. She says that she has phoned all the airports that Chameleon has flown to in the last number of days and each airport reports the same thing, that no passengers have ever arrived off those planes. The Commandant rings up the local RAF airfield and organises to have Blade's plane followed on its next outbound flight. While he is doing this, the doctor convinces Jean to help him sneak into the medical centre by having her distract Nurse Pinto. At the kiosk, Jamie discovers that Samantha has booked herself onto the next outbound Chameleon flight, saying that it is the only way that they will find out what's going on. Jamie suggests that he could go along with her, but the cost of the fare is too much for him. After failing to try and swap places with Samantha, he takes the ticket from her bag by distracting her with a kiss. Back at the control tower, Jean faints and the commandant summons Nurse Pinto from the medical centre, telling her that he doesn't want to risk moving her. Nurse Pinto reluctantly agrees to come up and once she leaves, the doctor sneaks into the treatment room. As he searches, he fails to spot the comatose form of the real Nurse Pinto, but he does locate the cabinet with the armbands. He takes a couple of them and makes his way back to the medical centre, telling a recently arrived woman that he is going to off-duty, but that Jenkins, who had been trying to sneak up on him, can help her. Once he gets back, Jean makes a remarkless recovery, putting her fainting down to not eat anything yet that day. Nurse Pinto leaves and the doctor looks for the imposter meadows to try and use the armbands on him, but he is nowhere to be seen, with the commandant saying that he has most likely gone off-duty and will be back in a few hours. At the kiosk, Samantha can't find her ticket and asks if she can be let on, but the attendant tells her that according to their logs, she's already checked in. Spencer is watching through the monitor and rings the desk to get them to bring Samantha into the office. Once inside, Spencer holds her at gunpoint. Meanwhile, Blade's plane has taken off again and the RAF fighter takes off to follow it. Jamie is on the plane but refuses the refreshments being handed out as he makes a dash for the toilet due to a dose of air sickness. The RAF fighter maintains a healthy distance from the plane, but the alien technology in the cockpit detects its presence and Blade fires a laser from the plane into the fighter cockpit. Back in the control tower, they monitor the fighter's rapid descent, not knowing what is happening to it, until it crashes. They also notice the chameleon plane seems to be standing still on the radar, leading the commandant to conclude that it too has crashed, 
However, in actuality, the plane is transforming into a rocket life craft and gaining altitude until it exits atmosphere, an actuality that the Doctor insists occurring. The plane continues up until it docks in a large orbiting space station. Episode 5 In the cabin of the plane, the stewardess asks Blade if it was wise to destroy the fighter, but Blade snidely remarks that their technology is far superior to anything that humanity can use against them, reminding her that humans are barely above the level of intelligence of the animals on their own homeworld. After they disembark, Jamie emerges from hiding. He starts to follow after them, but he goes back into a hiding when two of the faceless aliens come on board and begin to gather the personal belongings of the passengers. Once they have moved further up the cabin, Jamie sneaks on out into the station. He spots the stewardess down the hall in the storeroom, placing something in a stack of drawers embedded in the wall. He initially goes to follow her, but decides to investigate the storeroom. He goes to the stack of drawers, and after opening one, he discovers that all the passengers have been miniaturised and put into stasis, explaining how many of them have been kidnapped and held in one location. The stewardess appears behind him with a ray gun, telling him that she knew he had been in hiding as she had missed him on her count earlier when collecting the miniature prisoners. A faceless alien enters and takes a struggling Jamie out of the room. Back at the airport, the comet is informed of the fate of the fighter pilot, and he seems to be slowly coming around to the doctor's theory, but he still wants one piece of irrefutable evidence. At that moment, Imposter Meadows arrives back for his next shift, and the doctor shows him the white armband. He tries to object, but the Commandant orders him to follow the doctor's instructions. He then tries to make a break for it, but Jean trips him with a chair, and he is restrained by the other two personnel. The doctor starts to tinker with the black armband on Imposter Meadows, but he says that he would answer their questions. He reveals the location of the space station, and that there was a global catastrophe on their home planet, which rendered the entire population faceless. He reveals that they have abducted over 50,000 people so far, but he doesn't know where their bodies are, or who else from the airport staff, bar Nurse Pinto, has been duplicated. He says that if the armbands on the original bodies are tampered with, then the results could be disastrous, but he refuses to elaborate on it. The doctor then takes him down to the medical centre. In the medical centre, Nurse Pinto is ordered via viewscreen by Spencer to duplicate Samantha so that they can use her as an imposter to kill the doctor. Before she can say any more, the doctor and imposter Meadows enter the centre with a pair of policemen, forcing him to end the communication. One of the policemen restrains her, allowing the doctor to reveal her armband and disarm her as well. The doctor then enters the treatment room to search for her original body and releases Samantha. They discover the body, but outside the imposter nurse Pinto pulls a ray gun and kills the policeman guarding her. However, before she can eliminate Meadows, he dashes into the treatment room and presses a button on the original body's armband, causing her duplicate to collapse and dissolve. The doctor leaves the real nurse Pinto to recover after he notices a stack of personnel files, but before he can investigate them properly, Samantha tells him that Jamie has taken her place on the plane. On the space station, Jamie is struggling to get out of the chair he is strapped into when Crossland enters the room. However, he behaves very strangely, seemingly perplexed that Jamie avoided the miniaturization process, and then he asks about whether or not anybody believes the Doctor's story. Jamie says that they need to try and get back to Gatwick, but Crossland informs him that the last plane has departed in order to collect the remaining imposters and bring them back to the satellite. He also informs Jamie that the Doctor is no match for the alien known as the Director, saying that his intellect is superior to that of the Doctor. Jamie starts to grow suspicious of his behaviour, and Crossland reveals that he is actually the Director having earlier been duplicated. In the control tower, the Commandant issues arrest orders for all the personnel that have been duplicated, but the Doctor tries to stall them, saying that he needs to get on the last flight so that he can try and rescue his friends. Imposter Meadows confirms that his people have the ability to take on more than one identity, so the Doctor says that he will pretend to be one of the aliens in order to board the flight. He then asks the Commandant to carry on with the search for the missing bodies, but begs him not to tamper with the armbands. He then goes to visit Nurse Pinto to get her to help outwin the ruse. 
As they finalise their plan, Blade enters and orders Nurse Pinto to kill the Doctor, but she tells him that he's actually out the imposter meadows. Blade seems happy with the switch and informs them that they will need to be on the plane in 15 minutes, but does not divulge the location of the missing bodies. After confirming that the Doctor and Nurse Pinto got on the plane, the Commandant orders all available personnel and police to search for the missing bodies. The plane docks at the space station, but before they can leave the plane, the Doctor and Nurse Pinto are stopped by Blade, who tells them that due to the size of their cargo, they will need to report to the accommodation desk in order to be assigned their new living quarters. Blade then reports to the Director, who is running an imposter Jamie through the cognitive tests, that the Doctor and Nurse Pinto are the actual real thing. After using Jamie's memories to gather more information about the Doctor, the Director decides that he should be duplicated so as to use his knowledge and abilities to help rebuild our society. Blade says that he t- is too dangerous to be kept alive, but his protests are waved off. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Nurse Pinto are making their way down the hallway when they encounter Blade, who reveals that he knows that they are lying, and a pair of guards appear. Episode 6 In the control tower, Imposter Meadows insists that he is of no use as he doesn't know where the bodies are being kept. Superintendent Reynolds says that so far the search has been fruitless, but he does not have enough officers to search the entirety of the airport. The Commandant makes an announcement across the PA system, stating that all staff are to report in for a special assignment, and that all incoming flights are to be diverted whilst the outgoing ones will be delayed. Meanwhile, as Imposter Meadows is being escorted from the airport by the police, he breaks free and runs off. On the space station, the Doctor is brought to meet the Director, and he pleads with him to release all the prisoners. However, the Director weighs off his pleas, saying that the prisoners are only human beings, whilst he claims that his people are the most intelligent race in the universe. The Doctor then notices the imposter Jamie and points out that he does not speak with Jamie's Scottish accent. The Director ignores the jab and commends Blade on capturing the Doctor and says that he will decide which of their people will duplicate the Doctor. The Doctor sows dissension amongst the group by pointing out that it seems that only the elite of their race are given the best specimens to duplicate and store in the safety of the space station, whereas the others are at risk due to the distance from the original bodies. The Director tells him to keep quiet and reassures Blade and Spencer that their originals are safe, but they do not seem completely convinced. The director doesn't pick up on this and leaves and Blade starts to take the doctor away for processing but stops when he informs Blade that he had better hurry before he dissolves as well. He tells him that they have found the original bodies in the airport and that the commandant will soon begin tampering with the armbands until the prisoners are released. He doesn't tell them where they found the bodies but says that they are free to call the control tower to confirm his story and Blade does so. The commandant, realising that the doctor must be trying to delay the aliens' plans, plays along with the ruse and also doesn't give the location of where the bodies were found. Meanwhile, Jean and Samantha have found a potential lead when they search the kiosk office and see 25 vehicles registered to Chameleon Tours. They then call back to the control tower about their discovery and the commandant tries to buy them more time but the aliens end the communication and ignore his requests. Blade informs the director that the discovery is a bluff and the director tells him to carry on with the processing of their prisoners. The Doctor manages to sabotage the conversion unit whilst distracting Blade and the Director orders him to get a replacement, warning the Doctor that it is only a temporary setback. In the airport car park, Jean and Samantha are searching for the vehicles that match the registration numbers on the list. Suddenly, Imposter Meadow sneaks up on Samantha and the two of them struggle until Jean arrives with a pair of policemen. Once he is in their custody, Samantha points out the Commodore's form of the original Jenkins. This information is related to the Commandant, who once again tries to contact the space station. When they do not respond, the Commandant orders that the armband be removed from the original Jenkins, and as a result, the imposter Jenkins dissolves on the space station. The Director tries to downplay the seriousness of the situation, but Blade insists that they open communications again with the airport. He then gets into an argument with the Director, with the Doctor again mentioning the safety of the Director and his associates versus that of Blade and the others. Blade pulls a gun on the Director and orders imposter Jamie to contact the airport again. 
The Commandant reveals the location of the bodies and demands to speak to the Doctor, or he will remove the armband from the original blade. The Doctor is released, and after ensuring the safety of Nurse Pinto, tells the Commandant he will deal with the aliens. He offers to help ensure their survival so long as they return all the prisoners. The Director says that it is impossible, as the equipment required to reverse the miniaturization process is on their home planet, but Blade says that this is a lie, as the equipment on the planes can do it. The Doctor then tells them that they would have to revert to their original forms and they must trust their own scientists to find a way to save them. They reluctantly agree, but the Director makes a break for it before he is killed by Blade. The Doctor informs the Commandant that an agreement has been reached and that he then asks Blade to take him to his friends. After he successfully reunited with them and the original Crossland, he then offers Blade one or two ideas that he may be able to take back to his scientists on his home planet. Back in the control tower, the Commandant is dealing with a flood of calls from angry passengers and the confused airports when the Doctor arrives and inquires about the location of the TARDIS. He asks Jeans to help them out and as they leave, Jamie and Samantha share an awkward goodbye followed by a not-so-awkward kiss. Down on the runway, Ben and Polly realise that they have actually landed back on the exact day that they first left with the Doctor and making an emotional decision to remain behind and return to their world that they know best. The Doctor says that he envies them as he is yet to be, have the opportunity to return to his home planet. The four friends share a tearful goodbye and after Ben and Polly leave, the Doctor informs Jamie that they need to find the TARDIS as it has disappeared from where the police left it. End of the story. Thank you, Paddington. You're welcome. Bye-bye, Ben and Polly. So, with the story once again recapped, we are now going to go over to the trivia spot, which we are now officially calling it. I'm going to call it the trivia spot. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to the trivia corner, which you'd been calling it before? Yeah, because like, see, I had it, it, uh, when I said call it the trivia corner, I had been watching a lot of Animaniacs, so it was like, we now return to Dot's Poetry Corner. (laughs) 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 So we now go over to the trivia spot with Trisha. Thank you very much. So the air date for The Faceless Ones was the 8th of April to the 13th of May 1967. The writers for this story are David Ellis and Malcolm Hulk. David Ellis, this is his only Doctor Who writing credit. His other work includes work on Dixon of Dark Green, Compact, Emergency Award 10, Zed Cars and Paul Temple. David passed away back in 1978. For Malcolm Hulk, this is the first of eight stories written by Malcolm. So the beginning of a long trip here for Malcolm. We'll see his work again in The War Games, which he co-authored with Terence Dix, Doctor Who and the Silurians, The Ambassadors of Death, which is uncredited technically because he worked on rewrites, Mm. Colony in Space, The Sea Devils, Frontier in Space, and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Those are all really, like, notable stories for many different reasons. Like, all in a good way, like... They are. They really are. Um, It's a really strong showing from a writing perspective. He also wrote seven of the Doctor Who target novelizations, though he didn't do the one for this story. Hmm. I think the seven that he did are actually the other seven stories. The other seven stories. Malcolm passed away back in 1979. The director for the story is Jerry Mill. This is the only Doctor Who directing credit for Jerry, though he was the production assistant on The Massacre, I won't hold that against him. <laughs> you he became a very <laughs> he became a very successful TV director, directing episodes of Coronation Street, Zed Cars, The Duchess of Duke Street, Crown Court, Dempsey and Makepeace, Bergerac, London's Burning, and Heartbeat. He also produced over two hundred episodes of Heartbeat between nineteen ninety six and two thousand and four. So, really strong presence there in British TV programming. Mm. 
He is also Benedict Cumberbatch's godfather. Just pop a pin in that famous actor's name because we will come back to him later. The original version of the opening theme for this series was actually replaced with a new arrangement in episode two. So we mentioned last week that they changed the visuals. This week they or this week they actually changed the arrangement of the music a little bit. Ah. Chameleon Tours was originally called Pied Piper Tours. And I can tell you right now, if you were running a tour group for young people between the ages of 18 and 24 and you called it Pied Piper Tours, I would not touch that fucking thing with a 10 foot pole. I'm going to admit something kind of shameful now. I always thought it was the Piped Piper. (laughs) The Piped Piper. (laughs) Yes. Have a good good old chuckle at that there now. (laughs) Random fact, Nurse Pinto was originally meant to be called Nurse O'Brien. Every time her name was said, I had a massive hankering for a burrito. (laughs) Oh, when I saw that, I was like, ooh, Nurse O'Brien. The ancestor of, like, Miles (laughs) O'Brien. Ah, Jesus. (laughs) In the original script for episode two, both the Doctor and Ben investigated the hangar, but weren't able to find Polly, and were menaced instead by a falling engine rather than a gas. And Ben and Samantha then rescued Polly later on in episode three. Obviously, with Ben and Polly leaving, that was scrapped. What is it with things falling on Patrick Troughton? Or supposedly (laughs) falling on him? I wonder if that's where they changed it. I wonder if he was like, no. (laughs) No. Bad writer. Bad writer. Yeah. (laughs) Currently, only episodes one and three exist in the BBC archives. However, the BBC has animated the entire six episodes, both in colour and in black and white, and released them on Blu-ray and DVD. And actually, on the Blu-ray and DVD, you have multiple viewing options so you can view in black and white you can view in color you can view the color animation with the original episodes slotted in for episodes one and three and then you also have reconstructions of episodes two four five and six so quite a lot of content there on the like all of that's on the blu-ray i imagine all of it's on the dvd as well yeah i had i had those options as well yeah so the animation includes several Easter eggs. Um, I don't think there's many differences. Like last week when we had a big host of differences, which became mm. a topic of conversation. I don't think there's many differences uh, this time around. There's one difference, which is given recent storylines, it's an Easter egg that makes kind of go on a rewatch makes a lot of sense. But the first time you're watching it, it's like the payoff for this is incredibly long time to wait. Like, you know. Well, so is that an Easter egg or is it a, a change in the story? So we're saying last time yeah. there was changes in story. This yeah. time we have a list of Easter eggs. So, okay, it doesn't change the story in any way, shape or form. But it, it's 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 an Easter egg. Mm. Okay, so I'll go through the list of Easter eggs I have. If I yeah. don't mention it, we'll circle back to you and you can say what your Easter egg is. Yeah. So in episodes one and six, there's posters of The Master with Roger Delgado's face and then with Sasha Dewan's face that are visible when the police officers prepare to mount their bikes. That's the Easter egg that I know of. Okay. So yeah. I wouldn't call that a change. That was that was an animation Easter egg. Yeah. It, the only reason that it was changed, obviously, is because of um, the most recent storyline. Yeah. The face of the meddling monk can also be seen on the board in episode six. In episode two, the papers that 
Jamie, who's holding his upside down, <laughs> and the doctor read <laughs> while avoiding airport security contain an advertisement for a company called Marinus Padlocks, which I just think is brilliant. That's mm. like a total nerdy Easter yeah. egg. It's fantastic. And also for a rough and tumble cabinet, which is what was missing from last week's animation. I noticed none of those none of those things. And the only reason I noticed the thing about Sasha Dewan and Roger Delgado is because I had was aware of it ahead of time. So I was looking out for it. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I'm not one of those people who pauses things frame by frame. But after I saw these, I went back to try and catch them. Hmm. Um, during the eye test scene, when the faceless one gets a new body or whatever, the words Big Ron and Bad Wolf can be seen on the test board, though they're spelled backwards. I saw. I noticed the big, uh, sorry, big wolf, bad wolf thing, and there's also a bad wolf uh, Easter egg in Power of the Daleks. Hmm. For listeners that are only kind of getting into Doctor Who through the podcast, there, when the the show was uh, uh, brought back uh, in 2005, it became more focused on kind of season long arcs like plots, and they'd have little kind of things referenced thrown throughout all the episodes that would lead to the big payoff at the end. Now with the change like or now with the advent of the animation they're going further back into the stories or in they're inserting all these easter eggs to try and make it seem like it's a huge going on thing throughout all the doctor's timeline Mm, very true in episode six when the commandant is speaking over the intercom system there's a sign advertising magpie electricals which is from the idiot's lantern which again is another post 2005 story and the daily reflection on the Commandant's desk displays on the front page, War Machines Defeated, which places this story exactly in the War Machines like we find out at the end. Which I like, that, that's a nod that I think works really well in the context of the story because it's referred back yeah. to at the end. Yeah, exactly. So on to our cast. So as Samantha, we have Pauline Collins. This is the first of two Doctor Who appearances for Pauline. We will see her again many, many years down the line as Queen Victoria in Tooth and Claw. Which I love. Yeah, it was a very good story. Um, Pauline was actually approached to convert Samantha into a companion to replace Ben and Polly. Um, unfortunately, even though Inns Lloyd and Fraser Hines both really liked her and really wanted her to stay on, she declined the offer. I was convinced that uh, the first time I watched this, for some reason I thought it was Scylla Black. <laughs> <laughs> So Pauline's other acting credits include Secrets of a Windmill Girl, Upstairs Downstairs, and its spin-off Thomas and Sarah, Quartet, which is a lovely movie, Bleak House. This is the 2005 version, so it is the version with Gillian Anderson. We mentioned the non-Gillian Anderson mm-hmm. version in a previous episode. Shirley Valentine, which is what I know her from. Yeah. And No Honestly. She was awarded the OBE, the Officer of the Order of the British Empire, in 2001 for the Queen's Birthday Honours List for her services to drama. The Commandant is played by Colin Gordon. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Colin. His other acting credits include The Man in the White Suit, The Doctor's Dilemma, H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, Carry On Constable, Steptoe and Son, The Pink Panther, Zed Cars, and UFO. Question. Is that the 1930s version of The Invisible Man, or is it a separate version? I don't recall. I have a feeling that it might be a different version, because I would put him in his 40s in this story. Yeah, I wouldn't... I, yeah. I don't know if he would have been old enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, Colin passed away back in 1972. Crossland, slash the director, 
uh, is played by Bernard Kay. This is Bernard's third appearance in Doctor Who. We previously saw him in The Dalek Invasion of Earth, where he played Carl, and in The Crusade, where he played Saladin. The man is a fucking chameleon. I did not recognise him. <laughs> a chameleon? Really? That, 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 oh, that's what oh, you're going with? Oh, fuck. <laughs> I feel so dirty now. Yeah. Um, we will see him again in Colony in Space, so he's not done yet. His other acting credits include Coronation Street, Emmerdale Farm, The Last Days of Pompeii, Dick Barton Special Agent, Zed Cars Again, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the TV series from the 1960s where he played Aslan. And I'm pretty sure I mentioned that when we talked about Saladin. I think, we, I, think it, I have vague memories of that. Yeah, it's not often I mention the word Aslan, so whatever. Bernard passed away back in 2014. Jean is played by Wanda Ventham. This is the first of three appearances for Wanda. We'll see her again in Image of the Fendal and Time in the Rani. Her other acting credits include The Navy Lark, No Hiding Place, The Avengers, The Prisoner, Family at War, UFO, The Lotus Eaters, Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, which I think is the best That's ever. I, 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 I'm almost imagining, I know it says Kronos, but like I'm sort of imagining like Kratos meets Assassin's Creed Black Flag or whatever it's called. Yeah. So it's like God of War meets Assassin's Creed. Yeah. And Sherlock, where she played Sherlock's mother. Now, I mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch earlier. She is Sherlock's mother. She is Benedict Cumberbatch's mother. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I take it she kept her professional name. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming she did, yes. <laughs> um, she did meet Benedict Cumberbatch's father, though, when they were filming The Lotus Eaters. Ah, huh, cool. <laughs> Better darn Cumberbutton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, Blade is played by Donald Pickering. This is the second of three appearances for Donald. We previously saw him in The Keys of Marinus, where he was playing Aeson. He was the court prosecutor that was having the fling with you on yeah. the side and framed Ian. We'll see him again, also in Time on the Rani. His other acting credits include A Bridge Too Far, The Palacers, The Man Who Knew Too Little, Yes, Prime Minister, Jack and Ori, and The Avengers. And there's one other movie that I knew I recognised him from. I watched it uh, about maybe six or seven months ago. Mm. Uh, it's a movie called Zulu Dawn. It's a prequel to the movie called Zulu. And he plays a officer. Uh, he plays an artillery officer. And like he's such like one of those upper class toffs in it. But the way he dies is actually kind of... It's kind of haunting. Um, he's setting up um, the kind of what would be the precursor to mortars. And mm. he, like, there's just a horde of Zulus attacking, and he only manages to get off two rounds, and then he he draws his sword, and it's just that typical British officer thing, overwhelming odds, draw the sword, and he dies instantly. It's just one of those, but it's a haunting movie watching that, and mm. that's where I recognise him from, and I thought he was really good in it. Donald passed away back in 2009. Spencer is played by Victor Winding. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Victor. His other acting credits include... Menace Unseen, Strike It Rich, Bognor, Crossroads, and Emergency Ward 10. Victor passed away in 2014. In this story, we say goodbye to Ben and Polly. Um, mm. It fe- almost feels like they've just joined and now they're leaving again. Uh, it's it's strange because technically they had nine stories altogether. Mm. But I suppose it feels so short because you had three with William Hartnell and now you have six with Patrick Trouden. So it, it feels like there's a definite split yeah. Even though it's continuous. Yeah. Um, one of the things is that like I couldn't find any mention on Wikipedia or in the TARDIS wiki about 
why they left. I assume it was just a contract expired thing. Mm-hmm. One thing I did find, and I'm going to put a, a thing of salt on this, right? Because there's no citation. This was listed on Wikipedia, but there was no citation provided. It says that they were actually contracted up till episode two. So I'm going, I'm guessing they went by number of episodes, not number of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for episode two of The Evil of the Daleks, but it was decided that they would leave after filming episode two of this story. And so they just pre-filmed the bit at the end. Yeah, because like, I suppose what happened with... Um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name of the, the lady that plays Dodo. Jackie Lane. Mm. Uh, she was contracted and her contract uh, expired halfway through a story. And just yeah. very kind of unceremoniously written out. So maybe they didn't want that. Yeah, because like they... I presume they were... Because of the way the stories are designed where some of them are four episodes, some of them are six and so on. I imagine they're actually just, their contract is for a number of episodes and mm. it's kind of luck of the draw where that, where that line in the sand becomes. Yeah. Particularly when you consider they were hired a season prior, so you, you wouldn't have done. Mm. But yeah, so apparently it was just decided they'd leave a story early. But like I said, there's no citation given for that. So maybe take it with a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. This was the final performance for Michael as Ben before his death in 1998. He is not in any other Big Finish stuff or anything else as Ben. This is the final performance of Michael as Ben. Annika, on the other hand, has done a lot of work with Who over the years. She's done several stories with Big Finish. She's done audiobooks. She's done non-Big Finish audio stuff. She's done... Uh, narration for the target books she did narration for some of the reconstructions that the bbc did and you know she appears on like the blu-ray collections that are coming out now there's a feature called behind the sofa and she appears on that with some of the other actresses who've played uh, companions where they basically watch the episodes and comment on them as they go so annika has been very involved and continues to be very involved in doctor who and that's one thing I love is when like um, because you know some people they would be very kind of I suppose maybe wary of being typecast in a specific series but it's mm-hmm. always great and it's not just in Doctor Who it's in stuff like Star Trek as well that the the actors they love the fandom and they love getting involved in any way that they can yeah once conventions start to pick up again Annika is someone that I would really love to meet mm. in terms of after show content so in comic books books audiobooks whatever the case may be um ben proposed to polly at the top of the post office tower where they originally met their original story took place in 1966 <laughs> however they later separated and married other people uh polly had a child with this other person named simon um before meeting up with each other again apparently they met up tw- this is now bear in mind this is a variety of media right yeah. so you've got books and whatever apparently they met up twice once while they were married and once after and both times had to sort of rein themselves in yeah shall i say <laughs> um but after the second time that they met up they ended up remarrying or marrying for the first time depending on obviously the canon timeline of those um in 2009 in the Sarah Jane Adventures story, Death of the Doctor, Sarah Jane says that Ben and Polly are running an orphanage in India. I, I actually remember that and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Also, yeah. from the sounds of it there, they had a very kind of Liz Taylor and Richard Burton-esque relationship. 
yeah and like ben's like ben's post doctor stuff um is you know, it's fairly straightforward in many respects there's a lot less information obviously i haven't read all of the stuff or, or like listened mm. to all of it so i'm relying on the tardis wiki to provide this but um polly polly has a weird life dude so i just gotta read this out to you because i found it really interesting so um there's a section on the tardis wiki like the fandom wiki that goes into her failed relationship with ben which basically says that they did eventually get married but the relationship didn't last and then there's another section called marriages and career which says polly was a glamour girl in the 60s queen of disco in the 70s and gave up smoking in the 80s <laughs> she she got married in 1981 had a son called mikey um 1986 met ben in a hotel room where they reminisced about snowcap almost kissed but didn't simon passed away blah blah blah. she had issues with her son because he saw her with a sailor that she met in soho (laughs) it's like okay clearly polly has a type um she became personal assistant for some person and then became a bit of a socialite so she became a public figure resumed smoking i love how they note this resumed smoking and struggled with bulimia that was well publicized had another brief marriage to this is a quote from the wiki right the gay one out of boys presumably some band or something (laughs) this is the one i find so funny she often attended funerals of celebrities to get her face in the newspapers. Jesus. She went to she went to Versace's funeral where she comforted Diana Spencer, and then she went to Diana's funeral where she comforted Elton John. <laughs> she once had a stalker who she described as a lovely young real estate a, a lovely young real estate agent from Tunbridge Wells. What the hell, Polly? <laughs> Most of this is in um, two pieces of prose, so two books or whatever called Mondas Passing, which deals with her and Ben meeting up mm. years later and, and talking about it. And then that time I nearly destroyed the world was looking for a dress. This, this, this sounds like someone accidentally stuck two halves of two different books together. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was reading it, because I like reading like what became of the characters yeah. or whatever. And we've had some we've had some tragic ones. Remember Dodo's one? Dodo's one was horrific. Mm. Stephen's one was quite interesting. I think Ian and Barbara's is probably the most like stable yeah but i was reading this i was like polly what the hell are you doing <laughs> so yeah that was um apparently the future ben polly with most of this stuff i take it with a huge yeah, pinch of salt, salt and i just go with what the bbc releases so from the bbc's perspective ben and polly are running a, um, an orphanage <laughs> in india <laughs> that, that's the bit i, I took Actually, I, I, it's got to my head now is the thing from Friends. It's the equivalent of, oh my God, she made half an English trifle and half a shepherd's pie. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) So, as always... Uh, whenever two companions or a companion leaves the show, we like to discuss them towards the end of the companion piece, but then they also get their own separate special episode, which will air uh, on Wednesday for Ramblings in the TARDIS. So we'll do the Doctor, Jamie, Samantha and the others, and then Ben and Polly. Yeah, I think we'll leave Ben and Polly at the end and we'll loop back around to them. So the Doctor, 
Um, I have a message for Doc Pat. Yep. Just because a door is locked does not mean that nobody is home. Yep. Most people lock their doors. You could have knocked, you dumb fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I know they had to write away for them not to find Polly. Yep. Right. But for him to say, oh, is anyone here? Oh, the door's locked. That means no one's here. No, it doesn't. No, no, it doesn't. In what world does the door's locked mean no one is there? <laughs> At least if he said the door's locked and the lights aren't on because obviously mm. they're in that secret room, that would have been fine. But no, yeah. the door's locked. I'm like, what? Um, then again, they could be complete introverts and also like, they could still be at home and the lights are off. Yeah. I work from home during the day and I keep my front door locked. <laughs> mm hmm. Bunch of weirdos. <laughs> um, other than that, right, which mm. really fucking irritated me, I'll be honest. I think he does very well here. Um, yeah. We do get to see a lot of ingenuity from him in you know how he was analysing the crime scene, you know, picking up on the stamp and you know, not really knowing yet how that would be important. Mm. You know, how he took out um what's his name? Spencer. Um, by plugging the holes and then having the sort of stun thing yeah. ready to go. All of that, I thought, was was great. Um, the thing that I liked the most was... So I've... I wouldn't say I've criticised the Doctor in the past. I've commented on how Doc Pat's Doctor seems to be a bit more open to violence, is probably the way I'd put it. In uh, some previous stories. I think maybe in a shorter space of time, he seems more open to violence. Yeah. So what I really liked about this one is that he didn't just say to the humans, oh yeah, go tear these things off their arms. Hmm. He respected what the duplicate guy had said, that that could be very dangerous. And obviously yeah. he saw what happened to them, that they became a puddle of goo. Hmm. And so he said, don't wake them up. Yeah. Leave them be. And he tried to find a solution that would work the best for everybody, which was basically give them their bodies back and fuck off and try and figure this out yourself. Yeah. But I'll give you a few ideas that might help. Um, yeah, because no, like, like, there's been a lot of conversations as of recent, like when people go further back and they start exploring classic who is the whole thing of, oh, the doctor isn't a pacifist. And it's like the doctor has never been like a complete pacifist he does not like confrontation he seeks to avoid it that being said if there's no nothing else but conflict he'll do what he can to try and minimize it and here i think is a scenario where it's a case of okay there's a sinister plot going around that also involves my friends and we can see what the da the potential repercussions of using these armbands are or damaging with the armbands but at the same time i want to know what the motivation is before i can pass judgment yeah, so like, I think what we've seen with Hartnell and with Pat is that they don't like violence. No. Well, Hartnell didn't anyway, definitely. E except in the Romans, because he, he Except in the Romans, but that yeah. was because he was being attacked. Yeah. <laughs> um, But they don't like using violence no. unless they have to. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, don't be... A punching bag but try and find another way out of the fight basically 
Yeah. Um, and I like that we get that really solidified in the story because like I said, I had a few concerns um, in some previous stories. I'm like, particularly like in uh, the Macro Tower where it was like, get him, jump yeah. on him. And I'm like, what? Or the Highlanders with poor old Perkins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm kind of glad that we got a story where that is a central part of him in yeah. it um, because I like that part of the Doctor. And it's the it's the bit that we it's the through line that probably gets explored the most in each iteration of the Doctor mm. I think yeah Um. so it, it's good to see that come up again yeah. with, like with there, Patrick there, Turton there are certain aspects that like each Doctor does and there's always this thing of like the villain of the week which you know to the viewer would seem just an out and out villain the Doctor still tries to ration uh, rationale with them and tries to like get to like a peaceful solution it's across everyone i think and it leads to some fantastic moments uh, across the the show the course of the show's history oh, um, like i like i liked him in this and i think i think more so than some doctors who are very good at it patrick Troughton, i'm going to say right now is probably the best at being like the annoyingly distracting pain in the ass doctor when dealing with any sort of administrative uh, head yeah he is very much a pain in the ass from that perspective like Doc Bill I think tried to ingratiate himself a bit more Mm -hmm. and like insert himself as part of that system um, in most of his stories or even like uh, even Tom like you know later down the line like Tom is you know he would sit there and he would kind of rankle them a small mm. bit, but I, I don't think he would get as under the skin as Patrick Troughton does. And again, it's just because of his whole mischievous schoolboy grin and like the hobo-ish appearance he has. And like, there are some really fantastic moments in this, like when he uses the stress ball as a grenade and he's just like, bye. <laughs> um, but I also love one thing that he brought back the doctor's bluster over the passports. And he just goes mm. some sort of official mumbo jumbo. And it's like, that's definitely something that Hartman would have done. So I'm glad that he's brought back some of uh, the bluster, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because you know he knows what a passport is. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's just that it's an inconvenience to him at this point in time. Yeah. Um, like, again, like, I think it's just a good thing to say, like, and it's a great thing to see that we've had consistently strong performances throughout the entirety of this season with him. Yeah. And... Again, as I said, lending credence to William Hartnell's statement that there's only one man in the country that can play him. Mm. Hmm? No, one man who could take over from yeah. from Bill. Yeah. Um. So thumbs up on the <laughs> on the, the doctor on this one. Yeah, um, very much. Yeah. Cool. So on to Jamie. Yeah. So with our companions, we have Jamie. Now, I had a message for the doctor. I have a message for Jamie. Mm-hmm. Now, you're a very chivalrous young man. Mm-hmm. You've been very polite to women. Mm-hmm. You're very you're very, very kind. Don't go kissing girls just to steal their things. <laughs> that is naughty. No. Yeah. Although at the very end of it, with that final kiss, like I just had Shade's smooth operator in my head. He's <laughs> a smooth operator. <laughs> uh, oh, I mean, first, he plays it very well yeah. do you know because clearly at the beginning of his interactions with her he was very sort of like um 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 what do yeah. I do <laughs> <laughs> but no you don't kiss people to steal their things that's that's highly inappropriate Jamie yeah I think like Jamie has like he is now 
really found himself and i think that again like we've seen in other stories when a companion leaves and the replacement comes in a lot of the writing is geared towards shoring up the new person whilst the old people are kind of gently put to the side and i won't say out to pasture <laughs> they're sent off to a big farm in the countryside um, well dodo was <laughs> well yeah jesus christ <sighs> poor dodo poor poor dodo um with jamie um i lo- like even at the very start of this when they come out of the tardis and there's a plane coming he just goes look it's a giant metal beastie <laughs> it's like all the shit that you've seen and you still think of a fucking airplane as like this giant metal condor coming to get you what i like about that right yeah. is so he calls it a giant metal beastie mm. right and then they go running around yeah the airfield whatever and then polly meets up with them again and she says like oh i saw a man killed and he says by a beastie yeah and neither polly nor the doctor correct him on that she just says no and moves on yeah because i think (laughs) i think it's at the stage is a case of you can take the boy out of the highlands but you can't take the highlands out of the boy but the thing that i like about is like so no one corrects him at that point right presumably someone corrects him later but he still gets on a plane (laughs) Yeah, he was clearly terrified of them, but he still gets on one. But I have a question. Yes. So, when they're stopped at immigration, yeah, they're told you can't have gotten on the plane from Madrid without a passport. Mm-hmm. He steals Samantha's ticket. How did he get on the plane? He does not have a passport. Um. No, that's an outgoing flight. So Yeah, and they said the outgoing flight from Madrid wouldn't have let them on it without a passport. Pres- well, okay, so... No. <laughs> you can't I'm, get on an okay, international I, flight I, without I, a passport, yeah, buddy. No, no but I'm trying to remember how fucking like, some airports work, right? Because like I'm trying to remember like our local airport, Cork Airport. When's the last time? Like, do you have to show your passport again at the gate? So you do your passport to check in. Yeah, and then you do your passport at... No, you don't do your the passport. The terminal when you are at the gate when you go on the plane. Right, I couldn't remember. It's been so long since I've been on a fucking plane that I can't remember if they do that or not. Because again, I recently watched Home Alone 2 and it's like a case of he crashes into the woman with just a ticket. They don't check his passport. They don't do anything. They just let him on the fucking plane. Well, that's because the plane's about to take off and it's Home nah. Alone 2. <laughs> But even in the first yeah. movie, even in the first movie when they're all fucking rushing through, like they don't check anyone's passports. Yeah, um, that was the pre times. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think Jamie did really well in this. I don't know about you, but I think, I mean, obviously knowing that this is Ben and Polly's last story, it probably makes it more obvious. But I think the story really cements how well Jamie and the Doctor work together. Oh, absolutely. And like, uh, kind of like what we were saying last week, it cements him as the companion that he could be even though he's from the 1760s mm-hmm. he could be the companion by himself jamie i think set the pretense for a lot of um a lot of things that would happen with companions not necessarily just male companions no but all companions in the sense of his origins would be of a more primitive nature than mm. the contemporary companions would have he again was one of those ones that shows a long-lasting companion which like he will be 
uh, can work. Like you, you won't get tired of him. And I think that I, I would like to see a, a historical or non-contemporary companion come back into. I would like to see an outsider companion. Yeah. Join the crew for uh, a space of time because, thanks to Fraser Hines, he proved that it could be done. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and he also looked fantastic in his kilt the whole time while doing it. <laughs> yes, he did. Mm. And I appreciate that when he sits down, he puts his hand like to put his kilt down between his legs. Yep, absolutely. So we don't have to ask the question of if he has anything on under there. Yeah, <laughs> nothing's worn under the kilt. Everything's in perfect working order. <laughs> um, so shall we move on to Samantha now? Yeah, so Samantha uh, are possible but then not companion. She would have been fantastic as a companion, I think. She would have been brilliant. Yeah. Um I can totally see why they wanted to keep her on um because she's in she's another take on a contemporary companion because up to now we've had three contemporary companions. Three female contemporary companions yeah. to be specific, right? So we've had Barbara Dodo and Polly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were each three different types of contemporary companions. Very, very different. Their personalities were quite different. What they brought to it was quite different. And I think Samantha would have been another interesting twist where I don't think she would have been as girly as Polly. But she wouldn't have been as much of a non-entity as Toto. No, I, I think that... Like, she's very fearless and she's very assertive. She's mm. a very assertive character. So I think that she would probably take... She would take elements of, like, Barbara's fearless, fearlessness and assertiveness, as well as her, the combination of her and Polly's intelligence, but also Dodo's... No, I, I'm going to say, when I say commonness, I don't mean as in, like, oh, she's awfully common, but do you remember what I said about Dodo was that Dodo and, by extension, Polly were fantastic gateway companions for the female viewership of that particular demographic to get into it. I think Samantha would have definitely slotted into that category. Yeah, and like one of the things that like we've compared we compared Dodo and Mm. we compared Polly to future companions, particularly modern companions. Mm -hmm. Um, Donna being the one that I think has probably come up the most. Probably, yeah. I think as of right now, and mm-hmm. I probably will change it again some, but as of right now, I think Samantha is probably the closest we would have gotten to Donna. Yes. No, absolutely. In the sense of, like, I don't think, she, had she done... Like, her pre- mindset and her attitude. Yeah. I don't think she would have taken a lot of shit from people, though, as well. Like. No, she doesn't. And, like, she'll continue <sighs> to fight for what she, she takes no guff from anyone. She continues to fight for what she believes in, mm-hmm. and she's very determined and dedicated which we see in oh, we see it in other companions as well but in terms of that sort of everyday person yeah. we see that a lot in Donna and this could have been the start of like the proud Liverpudlian tradition of having kick-ass characters in the show <laughs> we'll just have to wait we'll uh, have we to will. wait a bit longer we, we will um, but like, there was one thing um, like she had fantastic chemistry you know it's a combination of the writing and combination of Pauline's acting because she's a fantastic actress she really she is, is she's amazing um, and she deserved that OBE um, but like her chemistry with Jamie was was amazing 
and it you you do kind of feel a small bit. I think she's definitely falls into the category of those could have been companions, you know. Oh, definitely, and you know, of all of the could have beens, she was the most kind of ready to go. I think of all of them. I think I think she would have been the easiest to slot in because, like we mentioned, like Katarina, they that was a non-starter from the way they set her up. Mm. Sarah Kingdom, I still would have loved as yeah. a companion, but her introduction wouldn't have been as easy i don't think i don't think it would have been as easy for her to settle with the crew at the time um because she killed brett (laughs) (laughs) yeah and also also as well like she was she would have been the first sort of military slash authority Mm. type figure before ben came into the equation yeah and i don't think that we would have had I don't. I don't think we would have had as many of the amazing things that Ben brought to the table as a conflicted individual that Sarah did. Yeah, cause, I mean, Sarah probably went through all that already in her life. Yeah, exactly. And we wouldn't need to see her going through it again. Um, but back to Samantha, there was one thing that I thought was both incredibly commendable and also incredibly condemnable <laughs> was the whole thing of like, look, the only way I'm going to find out what happened to my brother is if I went through what he did. So I'm going to go on to this you know playing and we'll see what happens from there I'm like throwing yourself right into the lion's den I applaud it but at the same time I'm also face pamming <laughs> in the sense of like you know <laughs> no stop it uh, very done a thing to do I think yeah there, there was also maybe now I have this in my mind so when they're searching the cars mm. for the, the bodies the replacement guy I've forgotten his name uh um, the one that was in the car or the one that was making a break for it? The one that was making a break for it. Meadows. Meadows. Meadows attacks her. Yes. To try and stop her. And she doesn't scream out. No. She struggles against him. She fights against him. But she doesn't scream out. No. And again, that's a case of, you know, go you. Like, you're not like the screamer person. However, there's police around, so scream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kick him. It's that, it's that, it's that double-edged hmm. thing of like, yeah, she's a strong woman she doesn't need to scream out when something scary happens but Kick there's help the like, there's like ten, help like 10 feet away looking the other direction yeah. <laughs> so maybe do scream out so they'll come over faster <laughs> help police yeah. <laughs> oh. um, so next on the list I have is no we have the Covenant we have Crossland and we have Jean so what if- way would you like to do these three I sure might as well just do them in that order, sure. Cool. That's the way we've them written down. All right. So the commandant, at the start, he comes across like a monumental asshole. Oh yeah. But as the story goes on, from my perspective, the stress of his job, along with the stress of the situation, you really start to empathise with him. You do. So the way I have it written down is he comes across as an unbelievable dick. However, it's understandable. The Doctor and Jamie are fucking weird. You've got these two weirdos <laughs> with no passports, clearly trespassing. Yeah. You had a police box on your fucking runway that clearly has something to do with them. And they're trying to tell you that there's dead bodies where you go there and there's no dead body. And you're like, what the f- Go away. <laughs> Leave me alone. I was promised a dead body and there is no dead body. So I feel upset now. <laughs> Yeah, so like it's in his dickheadedness. It, it's kind of understandable in a way. Like part yeah. of it is just naturally that 
character's personality. Yeah. He's a bit of a dickhead anyway, I think. Um, but the complete opposite nature. I mean, even he says it to Crossland. He's like, don't you think this guy is a little bit fucking tapped in the brain? Yeah. I th- I'll put this way, right? I think he's a, from the sounds, from the looks of it, I think he's a good boss, but I'd say he'd be shite crack on a night out. I agree with the second part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no crack whatsoever. Yeah. I don't think he's a great boss. I think he's a great coordinator. I think he's very good at his job. Hmm. But he treats Jean as if he owns her. It's very old fashioned. All right. So just a comp- comp- when we get to Jean, I don't even just kind of uh, kind of do it now, right? Because. I recently watched a show that I think you'd actually get a good enjoyment out of. It's a thing called Avatar Legend of Korra. I've heard of it. I've never seen it. So there's a character in it. Uh, his name is Varric. And imagine like a a Tony Stark-esque type of guy who's like, rather than being like, a, like you know, he's not as smart. He is smart, but he kind of relies on his uh, companion, uh, Julie. And there's this running uh, gag in it that he just goes, Julie, do the thing. And no matter what the scenario is, she does something that helps him. It's just like there's no pretense whatsoever. So they, that kind of resonated with me that they had this sort of relationship. It was a sort of a gene, do the thing. And she's like, here, sir, here's your bobril or whatever the fuck it could be. Yeah, no, I didn't get that. I got when she was pretending to be, a, she's never done this to me before. And I'm like, Oh, I I beg your pardon. You do not own this woman. Her being ill isn't her doing anything to you. <laughs> like I thought, I actually read that differently. I thought that that was like he had, um, he was in on the fucking scam. He was he was not in on it at all. Right, I read that differently. So <laughs> <laughs> no, he wasn't in on it. So like him being like, oh, she's never done this to me before, and like you know, like he just it just seems like he owns her now. A lot of that is just very old-fashioned in right. general. Yeah, like she's well. his secretary or assistant or whatever. Um, it's a certain side of the times, but, you know, it's not really nice to watch either. <laughs> At least he didn't fucking give her a smack on the arse for a job well done. That's true. That's true. He, he did draw the line at that. Um, but like even like when she takes her own initiative, you can see like the double take of, what the fuck are you doing? You <laughs> didn't tell me that. What are you doing? <laughs> Um, actually it's going to sound really strange but I kind of got shades of Hobson from the moon base from him in terms of like he's competent at his job type thing oh yeah but I think whereas Hobson clearly got along quite well with people he was a bit detached but he got along quite well with everybody I don't I don't I don't think the commandant gets on with everybody bear in mind he's the commandant we don't even know his last name he's kind of like pilot in that regard (laughs) I'm just the title first name of the yeah, he's just the commandant. No one even refers to him by any other name. <laughs> um, so I think we kind of brought her into the equation. Do you want to segue into Jean there now? Yeah, we'll do Jean first, and we'll yeah. double back to Crossland. So, um, very helpful young woman, good mm. at taking the initiative. Um, clearly, she <laughs> she sort of reminds me when you consider the fact that like this is the bookend story for the War Machines, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in the war machines, we had Polly, who was also the secretary slash yeah. personal assistant, who was very intelligent and very on the ball. And very, so she kind of reminds me of like what Polly would be like if she was a little bit older. She's airport Polly as opposed yeah. to post office Polly. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
No, I I really like Jean because uh, again, like I I had like I got that comparison with the character from the Legend of Korra, and like she's incredibly capable. As you said, she's very, um, in she's very intuitive and she's like really good ingenuity, um, and I I again I think she's one of those characters like that. Yeah, she's the secretary of a administrative head, but at the same time, she probably knows more about the goings on of the day to day than he does. Hmm. Um, and like I like the fact that she kind of got her hands dirty in terms of like going out with Samantha to help try and locate the cars and that kind of stuff rather than kind of calling the shots from the safety of the control tower she was down on ground level yeah I, I, I sort of saw it as like herself and Samantha sort of having this a little bit of a sort of like women's lib <laughs> type moment of like <laughs> screw you Jamie for kissing me and stealing my ticket and yeah. screw you commandant for being a bit of a dick from time to time we'll just go <laughs> off and solve the whole thing ourselves <laughs> I'd watch it I, I'd, <laughs> I'd watch the, the side adventures of Samantha and Jean uh, oh my god it could be a proto SJA uh, SJA <laughs> <laughs> Samantha and Jean adventures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, cool. So we now come to Crossland, nineteen sixties Mulder. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I don't really have a whole lot to write about Crossland. He's a very open-minded man. Hmm. He's there to do a job, and he'll get it done. And he, if you have evidence or if you have some way of assisting him, he is happy to listen to you. I, I I think that definitely his ex partner uh, is definitely the straight man of that particular partnership. Oh, I imagine so. Yeah. Yeah, because like Crossan is like, oh, like he's the type of guy that would listen to like um you know a cra- like you know, a crackpot in the corner of a street kind of going right, who stole your cat? Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I really liked, um, so the way I watched, so me and Paddy watched this story two different ways. So hmm. I watched the full animation the whole way through and then I went back and I watched the surviving episodes Paddy did surviving episode animation surviving episode animation and then went back to watch the animations of the two surviving episodes so we kind of did an inverse yeah the way of looking at it but it came across much more in the original version of episode three when he's on the plane and he's there with his pipe and he's like, oh, we'll have to delay the flight and he's sort of like all the young people look at him you can see him can just fiddling with his pipe going uh, I'm going to go up to the cockpit sorry how do fellow kids <laughs> you could tell that he just felt so awkward yeah. I don't know, but also I love the fact that he fucking smokes a pipe yeah. um, oh, the time we, we could smoke a pipe at an airport absolutely or the, the time you could smoke on a fucking plane <laughs> um, Jesus um but no, like I, I really enjoyed his char- character, and he'd be, I wouldn't say that he'd be one of those ones that like, I'd like to see kind of in a companion basis or like as a sort, no. of, but maybe as kind of um, a recurring ally. Maybe you know, a couple of stories down the line, they return back to modern day England, and he's there working on a different case that also the Tardis crew also happened to be involved in. Yeah, I think he'd be a nice sort of touch point. Yeah, do you know, like if you imagine. Not quite Eunice, that's, that's a different no. beast. But like, like imagine like in Modern Who, hmm. you have like Donna's granddad. Yeah, or Mickey, the way Mickey was in season one. Yeah. Where he wasn't in every story. 
Hmm. Um, but the stories that were set contemporarily on Earth, he popped up and hmm. helped out and. Or you, like just uh, again, like there's characters like you know, say for example, which will come up you know much later on the line, but uh, Poro, Agatha Christie's Poro, uh, like hmm. there was a character Inspector Jap who wasn't there the whole time. But like he popped up every so often, and he was like a really helpful asset to Poro. So I like that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um. So, Ben and Polly. Who? Yes, I I honestly don't have anything to say about them. I I enjoyed their ending. I I actually kind of got emotional watching it because. No, emotional in the sense of I'm fucking annoyed that this is again a case of companions not being given a adequate send-off yeah like i've I've a few things right (laughs) i'll just say right now it pisses me off that they're both missing for so much of this and even in the episodes that they were in particularly ben yeah um didn't do a whole lot (laughs) what i find funny about ben (laughs) is when the doctor says scatter yeah right which Anytime someone says scatter, I just get the total, like, stereotypical cork thing in my head. Scatter. Scatter, bye. Um, but the doctor says scatter. You have the doctor, Jamie, Polly, all run one direction. Only Ben understands the term scatter and runs in the other direction. So, of course, he's the one that gets followed. I think the police was a case of it was a tree against one I don't fucking fancy my odds there <laughs> I'll go after the idiot who, um, the idiot who's the only one who does what the doctor said actually there's one scene that I really wish had survived the tree lads in the fucking photo boot <laughs> I'll always think I have somewhere where we can hide and, and you imagine like okay part two is kind of thinking did he mean Jack's yeah like is he going to take the fucking photo booth and the three of them it's, there's a bit in the animation I'm going to have to try and find it to put it on Twitter as our sort yeah. of like episode picture for this story I'm going to have to try and look it up and it's like the three of them are in the photo booth talking and someone sticks their head in and the three of them just look at the front and just smile <laughs> dude it's like it's like uh, Home Alone 2 with Harry and Marv are in the little houses and people just keep walking past and they just stop it's so good it's so funny um I think it's disappointing that like, the thing that see they each have something up on the other one Ben and Polly that is right so what Ben has over Polly is that he's in the story longer he's in the story as himself for a smidgen longer yeah um but what Ben has over Polly is what the doctor sees is the future for Ben the doctor sees the future for Ben go find your ship become an admiral mm-hmm the future the doctor sees for Polly is to take care of Ben. I no again. I, think I know we, he was joking. Yeah, but really, no. Que- the question is, did he mean it in the sort of look? You know exactly what Ben is like. He needs someone to look after him. But he doesn't. You know, we've never like Ben isn't Stephen. <laughs> okay, I'll put you this way, right. I on a day to day basis seem like a very capable well together person would you I'm gonna, try I'm gonna, if, if you go down the route of using you as an example you know a particular thing is going to come up that I have said I won't mention on this podcast because Ben has never done the thing that you did oh yeah <laughs> cool <laughs> but no like I- excluding that thing 
uh, like you know, like how often like do people kind of go like I'm not sure if Paddy should be the one to be trusted with this. Well, bearing in mind when we first lived together, you used to go to the bank, take out money, go into the bank and deposit the money, <laughs> as opposed to just doing an online bank transfer. Yeah, quiet. <laughs> Yeah, a simple no, yes or no. I, I, I get what you. A simple yes or no would have sufficed. <laughs> <laughs> I get what you mean, but my thing with Ben is that Ben hasn't really shown that he needs to be taken care of. Let's mm. face it. Um, now whether that, you know, Polly, you take care of Ben was meant to be a sort of wink, wink. I know you two like each other type thing. Mm-hmm. But it would have been nice if the doctor was like, and Polly, you go rule the world or something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um. I think not to be a total like feminist up on my high horse about it, but that type of comment, even in jest, just pays plays into what people think of Polly. Yeah, it it plays into like a, a preconception or a misconception, sorry. A misconception about Polly, yeah. which I don't like. Yeah. What Polly has over Ben though is Polly drives the plot. She does. She kicks off the plot. It would, there would be no plot of Wonder Polly, <laughs> um, which Ben doesn't. Again, you know, the question that I asked you before, if you take out all of Ben's scenes, bar the last one, if you take mm-hmm. out all of Ben's scenes, what changes? Nothing. No, um, no I, was trying to, I was trying to think of something clever, but no. <laughs> That's how little Ben is in the story. I can't think of a clever fucking thing to do with it. I was half convinced. It wasn't until I watched the original episode again. So I watched the animation mm-hmm. last night. I went to bed. I watched the original today over lunch. Um... I forgot that he even had lines hmm. in episode one. I thought that line came in episode two. Uh, like, one thing that, like, um, we'll, we'll kind of get to it on the overall, but I, I honestly have nothing to say about the two guys other than, like, yeah, Polly drove the plot, and that's it. Yeah. Um, let's look at their departure, though, because mm-hmm. I think we've had some touch-and-go departures, and... Their departure and the way this story was handled does mirror the War Machines a fair deal in terms of character disappears yeah, and then is leaving the TARDIS at the end. I do like the fact that they actually were there <laughs> and we got to see a proper goodbye. Um, I think it was a really good goodbye. I think it's sort of... Because while they don't bang on about it as much as Ian and Barbara did, Ben and Polly did want to go home. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like, when they're sort of imagining where they could be in that episode where, like, we sort of heard inside their minds to try and imagine where they could be. Polly wanted to be back in Chelsea. You know, at the beginning, Ben was all about, like, I have to report for duty. Um, And whatever the case may be, but... Or even in the underwater menace, like, they think they might be off the, like, on the Hebrides, like, and it's like, oh, we could be close to wherever. It's like, there's always this hope that wherever they land, they're home versus the sense of adventure that the other guys had. Yeah, um, it's not quite as strong as Ian and Barbara, who want, who really want nothing more than to go home. Yeah. Um, but what I love about Ben and Polly, um, in the slight contradiction to Ian and Barbara, is Ian and Barbara were convinced they could never get home with the Doctor. No offense mm. to him, but it it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, so they took an opportunity and ran with it. But Ben and Polly are like, we'll go with you if you need us. And I love that. I love the idea of, you know, we kind of want to go home, but you're our friend. So yeah. if you need us, we'll stay with you. And, like, it's, again, uh, kind of a hallmark of 
the relationships you've built with the characters over like a certain amount of stories mm. like that this, again this trio felt like an actual family mm. much in the same way that the original four and then as well Vicky, Vicky kind of yeah. felt like a family everything yeah. kind of in between has just felt like I, I, I even made the, at one point I said at one point they're just companions mm. and we start to kind of get a small bit of a feeling of I won't say family but that personal connection when Ben and Polly joined Hartnell but it wasn't until Troughton came on to see that they actually started to feel like a family unit again yeah and even like in that sort of expanded media that I mentioned before mm-hmm. um, Ben and Polly reminisce over Jamie and how they saw him as kind of like a baby brother yeah do you know and like that that's sweet and it comes across here do you know that they worry about them um, I think it was a lovely ending. I think it was very sweet. I think it it brought Ben and Polly full circle. Mm-hmm. I just wish that they'd had more to do in the story. But um, see, this is the to thing to justify you know, it. Yeah, because like again, I, I I made the statement earlier on there about justifiable departures, and it's mm-hmm. like yes, it's a happy departure, but the story does not match. It's what the same way I said about Stephen. It was like, oh yeah, cool. Stephen gets on like this pretty positive note for Stephen, but I hadn't seen anything of a story arc to kind of warrant that ending. Yeah, I think the difference between Stephen's departure and this one mm-hmm. is so. If you have Stephen's departure on one end mm-hmm. and Dodo's departure on the other end, and they've got yeah. we're gonna have Ben and Paul in the middle. So yeah. Stephen's departure was a happy ending for Stephen. He had a full story leading up to his departure, but we felt that the ending he got being king of a planet yeah wasn't earned yes by the character mm-hmm. then on the other end of the spectrum we have dodo who didn't even get to have an on-screen goodbye wrote a letter that didn't even have a voiceover or anything yeah. like that and was kind of a fuck you to, to the character and to bill like it yeah. in doc bill yeah and now we have this happy medium. Well, not happy. We have a medium. Yeah. Right. Happier otherwise. Right. Where we have an earned departure for the characters, mm-hmm. a complete story arc from their first episode to this episode, mm-hmm. but we don't have the the good departure a good story. Yeah. To tack onto it, which yeah. is the crux of the issue. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like I'm sure we're going to talk a bit more about Ben and Polly for Wednesday's yeah. uh, special ramblings or whatever. But I think it's sad that like, obviously we've talked about it a bit because for you and I, if we have companions that we have nothing to say, that is almost something to say. Yeah. Do you know? But, <laughs> yeah. you know, where were they? Nowhere. Mm-hmm. Were they in a cupboard? Were they in a little drawer as little t- tiny mini people? Mm-hmm. They could have been. They could have just been in their packing case, sitting like they were on the toilet. Yep. Don't know. Uh, cool. Okay, we'll move on to our villains, so before we get on to our overall. So, yes. for our villains, we have Blade, Spencer, and the director. Yes. Um. Now, do you want to go in terms of hierarchy within the Faceless Ones organization? Or do you want to go with, like, impact on the story? Or do you want to go with... The order I just read them out because that was the order you originally had them listed. Um, so I think I would. I'm going to go down in terms of level of competence. 
So I would go Spencer, the director, and Blade. Yeah, okay. I can go with that. Um, I have a similar note for Spencer that I had for the Doctor. So the Doctor, my note was, just because a door is locked doesn't mean nobody's home. Mm-hmm. Spencer, learn to lock a fucking door. Locking the office door is fine, but when you have a dead body sprawled out on the floor, hmm. lock the front door, you tit. All of his problems could have been solved if he locked the door to the hangar. S- Spencer is an again abs- and again and again. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> Spencer is an absolute fucking idiot. Uh, like, like, I have like I was going. Not since the jailer in the Reign of Terror have we seen this level of incompetence in terms of a villain. Like, did, okay, you have been bested multiple times by this individual. You have been tasked with killing this individual. I'm going to set a really slow laser beam to cut him, cut off his head in about, I don't know, maybe two or three minutes. And I'm going to walk away and be fully sure that this is going to work. Also, the laser beam. There was one laser beam and three people. Yeah. so presume- And the laser beam looked like it was just going along the floor in a straight... It looked like it was going to cut off Samantha's shoulder. See, this is the thing that I... Because th- I looked at the surviving... Um, I looked stills. I went, The stills as well as watching the episode... And it was like, okay, the orientation looks like it's only going to be cutting one of them, not perfectly in half, but whatever. So it's like, why put all three of them down on the ground? You're an idiot. What he should have done was shot move, (laughs) shoot them. That works. Move the laser like to the other wall, like 90 degrees so that the laser is going to go across three abdomens hmm. rather than down one shoulder and I, maybe half a boob like <laughs> depending on cup size I suppose like, yeah. 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 I, think, I, I don't think I've ever advocated for a villain to kill the doctor like, you know, as much as like just shoot him it's, it's, it's like the start of Jurassic Park shoot her <laughs> it really is a not, thing not so like, clever boy you know like it's because he's trying to be clever. And you could tell that Blade is just like, oh, for fuck sake. <laughs> but I still think all of this could be avoided if he learned to lock the hangar door. Who made this man a pilot? I did, sir. He's my cousin. <laughs> I knew it. I'm surrounded by assholes. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's, like the, he's like the mathematically challenged Dalek from the chase. <laughs> Oh, he's such an <laughs> idiot! Like, oh god, oh. I can imagine, like you know, when like the imposter Jenkins got dissolved, like Blade was just like, "Why couldn't it have been you?" <laughs> <sighs> it's like Jenkins is at least useful, mm. <laughs> but like, as well, you sort of, it sort of strikes me as like he is so incompetent that you imagine that like at any point in time he'll get an itch and we'll just take off that Wii remote that keeps him <laughs> that keeps him with his new body because he'll get an itch and he'll just take it off oh, also no. yes they look like Wii remotes you got one black yeah. one and one white one yeah no just like again like he's the type of guy that would like use like a, I don't know, a gun to scratch his temple <laughs> just like, oh, mm. idiot like oh, oh there's so many comparisons I can make with this guy <laughs> Like, was it Douglas from the IT crowd here with the gun? A gun! Wow! Which click, 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 click. It's not loaded. Oh, that's lucky. Yeah. Um, so then we have the director. Right. I'm a bit disappointed with the director. Me too. 
he like you know is it built up to be like this you know phenomenal mastermind and in the while he's just like you know a case of it's like well i think i should get you know the best one because i'm so great and i think all my other friends should get all the really good ones because they're so great as well yeah it's like he's a terrible actor mm. and it's like he's built up to be like this genius mastermind mm. he's a fucking moron like <laughs> pay no attention to the man behind the curtain yeah he, he was such a he was such a letdown yeah um, um like you, you like it was the, you're such a letdown you didn't even notice that the, the the scottish guy he replaced lost his scottish accent well yeah but the one thing i'll say about that is how is the director to know because he never went to earth he stays on the fucking space station but he heard jamie like, but he talked to jamie well, yeah, but he's also an idiot. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, isn't like he doesn't realize that they have <laughs> regional dialects. Now we know who gave Spencer his job. <laughs> totally. <laughs> he's like my wife. He's, or yeah, no, he's my wife's son. I no, he's my like, he's my like sister. He's my sister's son. I promised that I would do this. You know. He needed work experience. Yeah. Like. <sighs> he gets the coffees. There we go. <laughs> um, but again like we've seen in some other stories kind of maybe harkening back to the space museum the big bad isn't the worst villain like or isn't no. even like the most intriguing villain that would here goes to the second in command and that goes to blade yeah and i again much like samantha a large portion of that goes down to the incredible acting of donald pickering yeah, I think he did. I think he did that role really, really well. He makes be he makes being a villain, and even like when he played Ison in Keys of Marinus, he makes being a villain seem so effortless. Yeah, maybe he is a villain. Could be. He could be a absolute bastard in real life. Yeah, I I sort of get the sense with him that like he respects the director as their because the director is their leader and mm-hmm. he respects the position, mm-hmm. but he has no respect for the man. Oh no. No, absolutely not. Like, he would never show dissent in front of others. No. I have a question for you, okay? Mm. Um, I I think he's a fantastic villain in the story. Like, he's really capable. And, like, never once do I get the impression that the guys uh, have one up on him. I think he's constantly got aware of all his surroundings, aware of what's going on, and he's prepared for anything to throw at them. But with that in mind, right when he gets worried about the doctor saying oh well you know all the the duplicate bodies are in danger down below do you think he's acting out of self-preservation or do you think that he's genuinely worried about his colleagues back in Gatwick I think it's a bit of both Hmm. I think it's a bit of both I think well he has no colleagues back in Gatwick there's colleagues bodies back in Gatwick yeah because everyone's on the space station Um, yeah I think I think it's a bit of both I think he realises that you know, you sort of imagine an operation like this, with the exception of Spencer, is their best operatives. Yes. Right? Um, and he clearly put a lot of work into this, and he works closely with these people, and he orchestr like he orchestrated the whole thing. I think part of it is self-preservation, but I think there is a genuine sort of. I think it's a fear for his immediate, like underlings. Subordin- his subordinates sorry but Subordinate. also i get the sense it's actually a fear for his people do mm. you know if you do this if you kill all of us then what's going to happen to the rest of them yeah um because you know yeah he's he's an evil man he's done evil things but 
I imagine from his perspective, the reason why he did the evil things is because they needed them. Hmm. If they didn't need them, he wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Other than the director who kind of wants, who thinks that he's the smartest man in the universe. I think Blade was very much a case of the only way to save our people is to find a similar humanoid species and adopt their personas, essentially. Um, And so he said, okay, how many do you need? 50,000. Cool. Yeah. I'll get them. Yeah. Like he's a, he's like he's a, like he's a great field commander. Like he is. Yeah. Like and again, I said throughout the story, he's great in it, both, both character and actor. Mm-hmm. Um. One thing I want to ask though, just because you brought it up, is that obviously on Earth they're they're suffering from atmospheric changes. Mm-hmm. Is it ever established that, other than the fact that they've lost their physical features, that they're lives are in any way in danger what the implication i got Hmm. and this this is very much reading between the lines right the implication i got was they would never be able to leave the ship because like they like they couldn't go to any planet yeah and i have a funny feeling that their lack of a face probably has other ramifications as well yeah because he does mention like that their home world still has their scientific core on it no yeah. in what, what way we don't know are they in bunkers underneath the planet's surface or like there are times where certain uh statements are i i feel would go a long way towards kind of establishing a bit more of a tighter story yeah i w- i would agree it's like the focus is on this group of people taking humans and replacing them. That is the focus of the story. I don't think a whole lot of time was put into the yeah. bigger picture. Yeah. Chicken penny are a of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll milk that joke for all it's worth. <laughs> so we've done our summary overview we've done our trivia we've done our character discussions now it is time for our overall thoughts on this story so patty i'm going to hand it over to you what did you think of this overall and what score did you give it out of five so i got to be 100 percent honest i don't really like the story okay yeah i i was kind of bored watching it and that goes down to the fact that i think the concept of the story was fantastic I, i really liked it but for a story involving doppelgangers, I don't think they were u- they were used as effectively as it, they could have been. I don't think that the concept like I I feel like again it maybe it's just down to the right like there should have been more with Polly and maybe Ben with their doppelgangers inserting themselves into the investigation and like fucking things up as opposed to what they did with Polly, which was mm. like very again just poor. Um, so it it lost a lot of kind of interest for me in that, in the sense of I just didn't think the story was used as effective. The elements of the story that were there, while interesting, weren't used as used as effectively as they could have been, in my opinion, anyway. Mm. Um, I'm also not a huge fan of the story in the context of Ben and Polly's last story. Um, I like I know I don't like I like their ending, and I got emotional like as I got emotional at their ending. Small part impacted by the fact that I was so annoyed, which led to me being more emotional. Because, you know me, I like, I want another chase. Mm. You know? 
Um, yeah. I think we all do. <laughs> I think I think we just all want that sort of thing again. Um, on the flip side, Jamie, the Doctor, and Samantha, all fantastic performances. Uh, again, Blade, a really good villain in a sea of incompetence. <laughs> With possibly the exception of like Pinto and Meadows, but then again, like they're not they don't really have huge impacts on the story compared to mm. the others. So with all that in mind, I gave this a two. Two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So unfortunately th- th- this one is just again I I I, I look forward to departure stories, but th- this one just didn't hit it for me, I'm afraid. Mm. I think there's gonna be another sort of not quite in the same vein, there's gonna be another massacre type story for us because i actually really enjoyed the story Hmm. um the modern setting i think was handled very well Mm -hmm. um and the whole idea of kidnapping young people using a charter flight is both intriguing and fucking terrifying like the idea of you get on a plane and you're gone it's very battle royale-esque it's not even Battle Royale-esque. It's just fucking oh, terrifying like, oh, in general. Yes, like. I suppose in like in modern days because like, you know, even yeah. like, in, like, like the concept of the movie Taken, you know? Yeah, but like even just in reality. Yeah. Oh, like, you know, hijacked <laughs> planes. Yes. You know, like how many times over the last 10, 15 years have you heard of just planes going missing? Hmm. And, you know, like in this story, the plane doesn't go missing. The people disappear off the plane. Yeah. Like, I think that is terrifying. And having Samantha's character as someone directly impacted by that, I think was a great idea. So as opposed to just having um, Crossland and his partner investigating it, we have a character directly impacted by it. I thought was was brilliant. Um, I think the villains were interesting. Um, I do agree with you that they were a bit underdeveloped. The focus was on what they were doing, not not necessarily who they are, which is why, like, you know, people who've listened to our previous episodes, we were, like, usually with a villain like this, we would discuss the faceless ones as the villain. And we didn't this time because the faceless ones aren't the villain, really. Hmm. It's Blade and Spencer and the director. Yeah. It's not the species or whatever that, that is presented as the villain. Um you know, like compared to like the Cybermen or, yeah. or something or like that. Or the Daleks or the Monoids or... Yeah, the, the Monoids probably being a good example. Like we didn't discuss the individual Monoids, we discussed them as a group. Um, yeah. We didn't do that this time around. Um, so the that, that for me was a small negative though, because in this story, I didn't care. Um, I liked the story I was given. Hmm. Um, the big negative, so that's like a small, a small negative yeah. that, that I took off. Um, and actually, I would love if we returned to these villains at some point. I think they'd be really interesting. The one thing that I think that we won't return to them, though, is what we were saying about why were they doing this mm-hmm. is done much better with a later villain. Yes. I think that's the one. Which is unfortunate I- because I think these ones were interesting because they had a reason to do it. Mm. <laughs> Whereas the other ones don't. <laughs> I, I, that's the thing. Like, and like, I don't think they'll ever, like, I don't see them coming back in any, anytime soon because of concepts that have been explored with that other villain. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting if we went to their planet, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, there, there's a way, I think there's a way you could bring this villain back. And maybe even not as a villain. Mm-hmm. 
as a sort of a science episode. I well, think like we, we could like kind of like what we said back. with uh, the Ark, you know, with the the refugians. Yeah. Like yeah, we could watch the story of how the catastrophe occurred. Yeah. Hmm. Um, the big negative though was the absence of Ben and Polly. I I understand why they were absent. I do. Um, but like you said, in a doppelganger story. Like your one didn't even impersonate Polly. She took Polly's body in and pretended to be somebody else. Yeah, and that was never going to fucking work. Um, <laughs> that was, was a stupid plan. That, that was a horrific plan. What why is your English so point? good? I had an English governess. Okay, Annika Wills cannot do an accent. Yeah, but also, like, have her be Polly. Yeah. Have her be Polly, and at the end of the episode, it's revealed she's Polly, and she becomes a puddle of goo, and they can't find Polly, mm. the real Polly, or whatever. So that bothered me, you know, like it's it's their last story and they don't get an Ian and Barbara story to yeah. go with it, which sucks. They don't get the chase. Um, thankfully, they do return at the end. I think it was a lovely goodbye scene with Jamie and the doctor because it was saying goodbye to Jamie and the doctor as well, which yeah. I thought was great. I've already mentioned I loved their whole we'll stay with you if you want us to. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was very, very sweet. So for me, um, they lost an entire point for that <laughs> yeah and then there was a little half point for i imagine because of the fact that ben and polly were leaving i imagine there was meant to be more doppelganger stuff with ben and polly hmm. um particularly with polly's character yeah um they lost at a half point for that so i gave it a 3.5 i actually really enjoyed the story i think that's the biggest gap of a score that we've ever had i think so too <laughs> yeah um was the because... massacre that big no i think the massacre might have been a half a point that's we changed our scores so much on the massacre. I think. Well, see, I remember when I first watched the massacre. I was my score was incredibly high, my like my proto score, mm. uh, because I thought, like, I was just so sucked into the story of the massacre. But then I realized, wait a minute, I'm meant to be watching a fucking Doctor Who story here, and unfortunately, he's not in it, and we're left with Captain Dickhead. Um, <laughs> so, I like my score obviously came a lot. Down. I'm actually going to just check the massacre there now massacre or actually no it's even it's even less it's like i was 2.75 and you were 2.5 oh wow i was very generous you were I, I no. <laughs> no it's the, the space museum the space museum i think at that point was our highest uh, gap i was a 3.75 and you were 2.75 oh, okay yeah. yeah no i i really enjoyed this like i mean with the macro terror last week hmm. i didn't think the macro terror deserved to have a steelbook release with all these different like a coloured version and a black and white version and a reconstruction version I didn't think the Macro really deserved all of that like one of those things would have been enough not yeah. all of them Um, but this one I can get why they did a steelbook release I can get why they personally like I said we have a difference of opinion on that but personally I can see why they ramped this one up I thought it was very, very well done because like but like you know me like in the sense of like that I love the concept of shape changers and impersonators yeah. and we've seen it in nearly like like for fuck's sake you've got the concept of Battlestar Galactica with the skin jobs you've got um, any the episode. thing Paddy loves the, the thing well, like, I, I don't want to go that like you know it's like straight away like but you know you've but, got, but that, what it is the, the, yeah okay the thing Stargate Star Trek the thing <laughs> uh, but like, I love this concept and I just think that it wasn't used to its full extent here that plus um the like in terms of the villains again I thought only Blade was a very interesting villain and then the, the, the issue with Ben and Polly so yeah I 
I, I just added, I just I think all those elements didn't draw me in as much as I wanted to be drawn in. Yeah, well, there's there's no problem with that. Oh yeah, I yeah, think no. you know some people might get the idea that you and I have the same taste. We have very similar tastes. Yes, we do. But, but there, there, there are times when you and I are on completely different pages and stuff, and that's completely fine, and that's yeah. the whole point. Um, the thing, like if, the we, thing. if we gave it, <laughs> if we gave everything the same score, if our notes were identical the whole time, there'd be no point in doing this. Oh. And actually, like, um, I think what was one of our, like, I think back in one of our early episodes, I think with the Daleks and stuff like that. Again, Shane, one of our long-term listeners, he said that he actually kind of liked the fact that we weren't on the same page the whole time; that we had kind of contrary issues topics on certain things like even if you went back to the Daleks master plan our discussion about Katarina yeah very different there as well it's a character that we saw from completely different perspectives yeah. Yeah. plus but again like our difference in taste again comes back to the thing because when I showed it yeah. to you you weren't overly a huge fan of it so there we go but I liked the story I liked yes. the story there you go <laughs> however That's, yeah it scared the pants off me yeah and I didn't particularly want to watch it again I think that's the difference hmm you're a horror fan mm-hmm. and I'm not which I think at the times I think is strange because like you know you enjoy the alien franchise I do yeah that's true but I, <laughs> yeah. I think in terms of horror alien is yeah. it's actually not that far up there really mm, no it's not as far as towards some of the other things yeah but again I suppose that's the whole purpose of this is that we like you know this is your first run through a lot of this stuff mm. and it's my first run through in a long time and I've changed some score, changed my mindset towards some stories for the positive and some stories for the negative. So it's actually kind of it's interesting to see such a big gap on our scoring. <laughs> but um, we'll just see like you know if it's a an ongoing trend for the rest of the Patrick Jones run. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Cool. So guys, um, next week or not next week? Sorry. Well, next week we're back to our regularly scheduled programming with the last episode of the current season for the Eve of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. But this Wednesday, as with any, as I said earlier on, with any companion departure, we have a special episode, Ramblings in the Tardis, which deals with Ben and Polly. So um, until Wednesday, see you on Wednesday, and until Monday, we'll see you then. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>